Hello and welcome to the Broadcast Sport podcast. My name is Jake Bickerton and I'm the editor of Broadcast Sport. This is a recording of a speaker session we held at the Broadcast Sport Content Summit last month at Dot 10 Studios. It's called Creating Sports Content for YouTube. It's chaired by Charlotte Wheeler, director of the Broadcast Tech and Sport Group, and the speakers are Jeff Nathanson, MD of Team Whistle International, and Robbie Spargo, director of sport at Little Dot Studios. Welcome to this next session. Uh, my name's Charlotte Wheeler. I'm the director of the Broadcast Tech and Sport Group, and it's wonderful to see so many of you here today. Welcome to this session on creating sports content for YouTube. Um, I'm pleased to introduce uh, Robbie Spargo, Director of Sport from Little Dot Studios, and Jeff Nathanson, Managing Director of Team Whistle International. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming. So in this session, Little Dot and Team Whistle are going to provide insight for you into how they work with leading athletes, sports clubs and federations to create and manage YouTube channels. Um, and with that, what, how it, they maximise fan engagement and reach content made for the platform. So, Robbie, let's start with you, just to give the audience an intro to what Little Studios, Little Dot Studios do and what you do. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, as you say, I'm director of uh, Little Dot Sport now, so we just recently launched a sport-specific label as we have kind of felt like we'd reached a, reached a tipping point of... Uh, sports partnerships and wanted to position ourselves as a sports-specific agency. So we have about 50 or 60 people working in the team. They're social media managers, channel managers, producers, video editors, designers, strategists, everything essentially that it takes um, to run social channels for sports federations uh, and clubs. And we work with the likes of the FA and Formula E, uh, England Wales Cricket Board, Juventus, so a wide range of different partners who have varying objectives and, and varying um, varying things that they want to get out of working with us on, on social channels and social content. Okay, and this over to you, Jeff. the same? Yeah, no, we're pretty much a similar type of organisation. Um, we've been around for seven years. We started with a sports-specific outlook, and uh, when we talk about it, we talk about it, we help build, manage, monetize communities on social platforms, uh, you can see we have a contrasting list of clients. We work with the Premier League, World Rugby, the Olympics, and a bunch of other people. We also, and I believe both of us do this, we work with brands as well, which are increasingly trying to find ways of using social in a more meaningful way than just paying for those annoying advertisements that come that you have to sit through before you get to your content. So we work for creative solutions on behalf of brands that want that adjacency to sports, et cetera. So... Robbie, how do you work with sports clubs and federations to create and manage the content for YouTube? What's the strategy? Do you sit down together, put in a plan, or do you deliver a strategy and a plan to them for them to sign off? How does it work? It it varies from client to client, and I think the way that I would see ourselves as uh, wrapping around what the client already has in place, what the federation already has in place, and enhancing uh, enhancing that team, filling in the gaps in their particular skill sets. So, as I said, it does, it does vary from client to client. For someone like Juventus, we're there to be the international perspective on uh, getting football content seen on YouTube. So we kind of bring that to the table. It's really about optimization of content for international audiences, making sure that the content that they're producing uh, over in Turin is, uh, is suitable for the platform 
uh, and reaching that international audience through the platform. Whereas for someone like the England Wales Cricket Board, it's, it's a slightly different remit where we're much more focused on driving revenue and actually how do we create a content strategy that is going to create a revenue stream long term um, for that partner. So depending on uh, exactly what the client already has in place and also what their business objectives are, what they want to get out of working on YouTube, is it awareness, reach, uh, perception change, is it about driving revenue streams, depending on those business objectives and what they already have in place, we'll create a team that hopefully kind of can enhance how they work currently and help them to drive those business objectives. And what about marketing around that? So how do you get the people to actually watch? Who's, who's responsible for that? Is that Juventus or is that your, in your plan as well? 95% of the time that's, that's us. So I think one of the reasons that uh, people come to us is because we have a really in-depth knowledge uh, of the YouTube platform and the YouTube algorithm because that's a specialism that we've nurtured over a long period of time. We've got a lot of data that we can look at to understand how the algorithm is changing and shifting and, and what priorities YouTube has, what works and what doesn't work, and we can kind of bring that um, as an asset into uh, our partners' environments. So it's 95% of the time it's, um, it's our remit. There are times where uh, there's a really fantastic YouTube channel manager in situ at the, uh, at the client, and really our role is much more about just editing content or, um, or creating uh, or doing community management or creating graphics and things like that. But most of the time, trying to get that content seen is, is something that we take on as a core specialism. And do you have separate teams dealing with that within Little Dot or is it all project-based and you have a person responsible for each of those things? Um, it, it depends on the size of the project a little bit. So um, the FA and Formula E are two really big projects that we run and we have dedicated teams for those two projects, um, sizable dedicated teams. And then there are others where it's a little bit smaller scale and we might have little pods uh, of teams, so partnerships managers and channel managers and editors. Um, recently what we did is decided to actually split out our edit and design function into a kind of standalone studio within the sport function just so that people are working on different things and sharing expertise and an editor who is really brilliant at motion graphics isn't just working on one particular project they are um, spread across multiple projects and likewise someone who's really great at 9 by 16 uh, video can can work across multiple projects rather than just um, being pigeonholed into one particular area. Do you spread the talent that you've got? Spread the talent but that said I think it's always a balance with spreading talent and um, catering to people's passions and interests. Mm. Um, I, I think it's kind of, it's no particularly, some of the sports that we represent, you know, putting someone who has zero interest in cricket to run a cricket channel is just never <coughs> going to work. Uh, and so you, you kind of have to sort of bias the team towards people who have the interest in the sports they're running on. Mm. Um, and you get better success that way. And how do you find those people? So how do you recruit those people with specific sports interests how do you go about that um i think i think we're quite lucky in the sports industry in that a lot of people love sport and want to work in sports and increasingly we find that a lot of people uh, at a junior level <coughs> uh, maybe even an entry level um have some experience of video editing and uh, content creation because that's just the world that um, people grow up in nowadays mm. and so bringing their passion for sport together with their passion for content creation uh, is actually much easier than it was even five or, or ten years ago. And so finding those people is um, more straightforward than, than you might imagine. Right. And, Jeff, how does Team Whistle work with federations and sports clubs? 
how, how do you go about winning those contracts? Well, I think, I think one of the things that we try and look at and what we see within these organizations which is really important is, is that this requires a seismic shift in the way they've operated in the past. Leagues and federations have basically operated as B2B businesses, right? They sell, they license their content, they, they license their content, they sell their sponsorships. And all of a sudden you're asking them to be front of face with the consumer, with the customer, with the user. With, they, they don't, they rarely got involved in like the sticky end of, of having a relationship with an end user. And so what we try and do is, is we talk to them about how you have to shape, change your mindset, how you have to shift the way that you're thinking about um, your work, because often social will report up in either the marketing or communications, right? That's the way they normally structure these things. And, and marketing, if you go into marketing, you're running three-month campaigns. And if you're in communications, you're looking for news clips and appearances on, <clears throat> on the nightly news programs. Neither one of them are the functions that you require when you have to have, when you start creating social handles, when you start creating a YouTube channel, you have to be always on. You all have to think about your audience first. You have to provide content that they're interested in. Far too long we see people when they're operating their YouTube channels is they're just syndicating stuff that they're spreading all over the place. And yet each platform, YouTube, TikTok, uh, Twitter, each requires a different kind of storytelling that's required. And we have to work with these organizations to sit there and say, the way that you operate in the past and you syndicated content, you produce syndicated, has to change significantly if you are going to operate on social in a meaningful way. And worst of all, you're going to have to listen to people using the data and analytics and comments that are available to change your creative strategy to alter what you're putting out there. So you have this really kind of, uh, we, we try and help them navigate before we even start the process of producing content, of, of trying to help them understand that it's a different proposition. Far too often we see leagues, federations, teams, <coughs> clubs, sports organizations with terrible YouTube handles. Um, and you can go through them and you see there's like no subs, no subscribers, no engagement. You look at like a Coca-Cola channel, the biggest brand on the planet, and you look at their channel and they will have like six million subscribers and the latest video will have a thousand video views. And it's like, that's a chronic failure, and that's just Coca-Cola. I won't mention sports-specific brands because I've done that in the past and offended people in audiences, and so I won't do that. So I imagine only Coca-Cola is here right now, so I can say that. Rolex, keep on going through the list. But go look at your YouTube channel and say, what does that say about what my product is? And are people actually engaged, paying attention? Are they watching? Do they care? And if not, you have to stop what you're doing and start thinking from it afresh, and that's where we step in. And if you could create a top three list of best practices, so when you go into these people and, and they're like, we want a YouTube channel, and you say, you've got to have X, Y, and Z. Well, what are the sort of, Robbie, start with you, the maybe top three best practices that you would say to people that they've got to put in place? So I, I think the YouTube algorithm and the kind of recipe for success on YouTube is, is actually kind of relatively simple. First of all, you have to get the content surfaced on YouTube. Then you have to get someone to click on it, and then you have to get someone to watch it and watch as much as possible of it. And that's a, a kind of funnel that YouTube's built its algorithm around. They've been relatively open about that, I would say. Um, and it's a virtuous circle. So if you get through that funnel and it's a success, then YouTube broadens the top end of the funnel and surfaces your content to more and more people. And so if you go through those different things, I guess, first of all, talking about getting people to click on content, just think about the competitiveness of a YouTube homepage or a YouTube app or a watch page where there are eight other videos on the side uh, on the sidebar. You've got to make sure that your video stands out from the crowd and that that one-eighth chance 
going in that people have to click on, click on your video is increased because you've created a really compelling thumbnail, a really, really standout title, something that makes someone go, ah, actually, I want to click on that particular video and go and watch it. And then once they're on it, you have to then kind of uh, back up that intrigue that you've created. You've got to make sure that you hold something back so they watch all the way through, but you don't lose them within the first few seconds because you haven't given them enough. And so that balance of not giving away too much and holding something back, but also keeping the intrigue and keeping people teased at the start of the video creatively uh, is really, really important for that retention piece. And then that surfaces back through to um, YouTube wanting to service, surface your content more frequently. And I think you can help um, YouTube to do that with um, with uh, sort of search engine optimization tactics, so using the right keywords, with programming tactics, so releasing videos at times of, of peak interest, something like a highlights video has to go out the moment that it's ready or the moment the embargo is lifted, um, so that you're capitalizing on every second of search traffic going towards that particular highlights clip. Um, so you can kind of help with that surfacing, uh, surfacing job through, through some of those tactics. But that's what I'd say is really the key, is that funnel of surface the content, get people to click on it, uh, and then retain them on that content so that you're then feeding uh, what YouTube algorithm wants to see. Yeah, it's really, it, some of the points you bring up, it's like one of the things that we see is, is like the way that we produce stuff for television is completely, we have to do the opposite for YouTube, right? So we call it like this, we call it in our space, the sports blue. Everyone's got that dark blue and it makes them look polished and professional on set and in their graphics. And, and it's incredibly boring and they all want to have a flash, really nice looking graphic for their uh, thumbnail. And it's so boring and it doesn't jump out at you. It doesn't say anything about what the content is worth. You will put in your title, it was a nil-nil draw between Wolverhampton and Burnley. And your title, and no one will click on it, because you basically said, this video is incredibly boring and unwatchable. <laughs> Subsequently, you will open up with a sting, because you want to make sure people know which sports organization you are representing. And you can see in the audience retention graph on YouTube immediately that you lose audience immediately when you're running a sting. No more stings. Guys, title sequences should be keyable graphics and not full screen. You have to operate in a completely different way. People will do like match highlights and you'll see people coming out of the tunnel to pick up the ball and then they will go to a team sheet. You will lose 40 to 50% of your audience at that juncture just because you've opened instead of it with an exciting moment and capturing, um, capturing attention and awareness because you're programming as if you're doing your traditional sports distribution. So you have to throw away what you've known up until now and start operating in the way that we ask you to emulate, which is the way that YouTubers create content. The people who are the native creators to the platforms provide the guidelines of what you have to do on the creative front. Don't emulate each other. Instead, go out there and look at the absolute best performers in this space, the way their personalities work, the way they talk, the way they speak, the way they design their life around their YouTube content, and you have to try and emulate them, because if you're not doing that, you're not true to the platform. And the first thing you have to do is respect the platform, be true to the platform, appreciate the platform. Far too long, far too often in the industry, we see people sitting there say, well, that's just not the way we do stuff. And it's like, well, YouTube, which is the largest video platform on the planet, is not going to change for the sake of your sport. You're going to have to make those changes yourself. And you have to approach, approach it with a significant amount of humility. Because we point out, like when we benchmark, when we use analytics to talk about how your sports content is performing, we're not comparing you to your competitors because your competitors are likely doing 
probably as poorly as you are. And therefore, you have to compare yourself to the top creators, the top influencers. You have to find your inspiration from places outside of sport in order to find the way, your path forward. And the truth be told, the best thing to do is rip off someone else's idea to start off with. Steal someone else's idea, and then from there, you'll start learning yourself as to how to, how to do better. And what content um, works best on YouTube for the sports market in terms of number of streams, engagement, and financial return? Is there an optimal length of video that you found works best before people perhaps drop off? Um, what, what works best? I mean, it depends on what your strategy is, right? And YouTube changes. The algorithm changes. You have to be across it. And just because the platform performed one way, one moment, it doesn't mean it's going to change the other way the next moment. So right now, YouTube is pushing its shorts product incredibly heavily. They're scared shitless of TikTok right now. And TikTok has surpassed them in terms of overall uh, watch time. And so all of a sudden, the shorts product, it's the first time in the history of YouTube that we've seen the product team work so hard on developing a new product and promote it so heavily. So right now, if you want a quick path towards viewership on YouTube that doesn't cost that much to do, look towards shorts. And it's really an impactful way of doing it. Now we move on to monetization, then there's some quick, you know, some rules hand. Eight minute videos and longer allows you to run a mid-roll. And shockingly, your revenue goes up. But in reality, your CPMs are fairly low on YouTube. So you have to be very careful of getting too obsessed with ad placements because you lose audience with those multiple ad placements. And if you put eight minutes content up there, it could be rough. But I think what you have to do is there's so many different types of content that work that we're using YouTube for, from everything from instructional videos, home workout videos. What we have found consistently is that sports organizations undervalue their archive. They treat archive as the last thing they think about in terms of what is a value. And yet on YouTube, when produced the right way, in a kind of really exciting manner that's similar to the way that young people put together mashups, you can get a lot more value from your archives than you thought you had because you'd sit there and say, well, people don't want to see the goals from last year. And people will watch over and over again goals and highlights from previous years when packaged in a way that is YouTube-friendly, YouTube-centric. That means it's exciting, engaging, fun, irreverent, etc. And it's not basically, let's tell you the results from Wolves versus Burnley from three years ago, but let's find another way of packaging some of those great goals, those great moments in a way that feels much more like the way that young people watch videos nowadays. Anyways. Yeah, I definitely agree with, um, with that. And I think just to add on the original content side of things, what, seems, what we found work really well because of the way that the algorithm is structured is like repeatable formats. So if you've got a format that viewers can get familiar with and come back to, that's a really easy Thing for the algorithm to pick up on and to then surface your next video that has that same format title and your next one and your next one and your next one. And consistency is important on that front, which is a challenge for these organizations. People know when to watch, when to, when to tune in to see stuff. Yeah, trying to do it on a weekly basis if you possibly can so that it's the same time every week, similar format structure, similar presenters and talent even. Um, and, and like you say, that is a challenge in the sports world where maybe you'll be able to grab <coughs> 10 minutes with a, with a player here and there and then nothing for another couple of months. But, but it's something that I think if you get content in the bank early enough, and this is something we encourage our partners to do, to get evergreen content in the bank, uh, then you can work ahead and actually start to structure these things out over a, a, a more consistent cadence. Which is really important for sports organizations and bodies is a fact, especially when you see competitions. And it's like... It's like in the TV space, we're going to be on and off, right? We're going to be like, we work with World Rugby, and we're sitting around waiting every four years for a Rugby World Cup. Luckily, there's also the Women's World Cup, there's Sevens, et cetera. But the thing is, is what we've really worked hard with 
um, you know, world rugby to do is to sit there and say, people are always rugby fans, and you have to find a way of telling stories, creating content operations. We're going to hear from Whisper next, which uh, we've been working with on world rugby, and they've, you know, they've created a really great um, program called Whistle Watch, which is basically an appointment to view with a key personality that comes on a regular basis that isn't tied to the world rugby offering every four years, but instead is something that, you know, people have come to really appreciate as original programming. And it, that's something you have to think about is you are not just on the platform. You will never build a large audience or consistent viewership if you're just on the platform for the duration of your competition. You have to emulate. And we've seen successful implementation of this in terms of the NBA, in terms of thinking of your program as 365 days a year, even if it's an off-season, you have to find a way to continue to engage with fans, your community, et cetera. Well, it's <clears throat> just taking in, uh, thinking about fans, you know, sport, young, old. How do you manage or think about content you're producing when, you know, YouTubers are traditionally young, younger people, you're competing with Twitch, Instagram, TikTok. What is this sort of age or do you have any stats on the average age of who's watching the content you're putting on YouTube? Yeah, um, it, is a, a sort of, it skews younger than television, obviously, but it skews slightly older than some of the other social platforms. So particularly TikTok skews very young, um, whereas it did used to be YouTube. It was kind of younger skewing. And that's partly because audiences have grown up with YouTube and are now a bit older mm. um, and they consume YouTube as they would consume TV. One thing we've found really interestingly on YouTube is that to skew younger and to reach more younger audiences on the platform, uh, you have better success with, uh, and particularly better engagement with uh, player features uh, and um, original features that feature talent. So if you can uh, get access to that talent, to the athletes, and create original content with them, you will get a more younger skewing audience and engage a, more, a younger audience than you would uh, just purely through distributing highlights uh, or archive. That said, I mean, to your point earlier about monetization, <clears throat> one thing we found um, last year was that we had incredible success with a very old skewing sport because the CPMs were just so high. This sport skewed very old and uh, US where um, uh, it's a, a wealthy audience, uh, advertisers are trying to reach that audience and there aren't a huge number of them uh, uh, on YouTube as a platform. So the CPMs for advertisers, the demand is really high. And as a result, you can, um, you can have really great success commercially um, by targeting older audiences. So I wouldn't always say the only option is to try and make your content skew younger. Uh, there are ways of doing that if you want to do that. But I think just think about what you want to achieve out of YouTube and then tailor your content and programming strategy uh, around that. Jeff, anything to add to that? I just think that, yeah, you have to think about what your audience is and you have to think about who your audience is and you have to get to know them well. I mean, I, we point towards, I think, you know, you look at Global Cycling Network on, on YouTube. It's an amazing channel geared towards mammals, middle-aged men and like rent. So all of a sudden they're doing incredibly well <coughs> reaching a 35 to 50-year-old audience because they're selling incredibly expensive cycling gear. And that's one way to do it. But I think, you know, the way that we try and look at the platforms is YouTube does, while it's getting older, it's still skewing younger. And so we put that in the space of a TikTok, Twitch, and YouTube is skewing younger. You should think about your audience as being younger there and create content that is distinctive for that platform, your Facebooks, your Twitters. Instagram's getting older right now. And I think that's a bit more looking towards older audiences. And understand who you're talking to and who you're speaking because you have to... You have to have that conversation with your audience, and it's not a one-size-fits-all, so you have to reflect 
who you're trying to speak to and have and be ruthless to a certain extent and say, I can't be everything to everyone on this platform. That's not why I'm doing it. The reason the Premier League came to us and wanted us to do this kind of stuff was because they wanted to reach a younger audience in the United States and India and parts of the Pacific Rim. And so when we're looking at the content we're creating and the kind of conversations we're having, we have that audience in mind and we try and get to know that audience pretty well. They don't have to worry about being popular within the UK right now. I think they're doing quite well, the Premier League. And so they don't, but what they really want to do is, is they have a very clear set of objectives. And so our content, our channel management and optimization is geared towards those audiences. And I think that's an effective way of really using the platform is understanding I want to communicate a specific, to a specific audience and I want to have that conversation with them. And I think that's a good way of using the platform as opposed to saying, I'm going to throw everything out there and see what and, and, and appeal to everyone. I think that means you appeal to no one. And to be quite honest, the YouTube audience is pretty receptive to when you're being inauthentic, to when you're being a passive uh, uploader, when you're just throwing your stuff out there. They will, and you're never going to get the community that you want that will be active, engaged, excited, and someone that you can have conversations with. We've got quite a lot of questions coming in, so uh, let's start with, I mean, this is one of the questions I was going to ask, actually. How important is a high production value on YouTube, as you see some videos with a low production level with huge traction? None. Production values don't matter. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, you can see good stuff, you can see bad stuff, but if you're spending, if you're worried about, I mean, yeah, we, I say this all the time, no one, if you look in the comments and the millions upon millions of comments I've seen on YouTube, no one's out there said, gee, that's a really cool studio you have there. Or, or, um, you know, or that was a great graphic uh, title sequence that you created. Or I'm really, you know, they, they will talk about clothes, but they will talk about clothes in a way that it's not fancy. So you, production values are like, they will talk about the music track. They will talk about, I will use canned music on a video, and those people sit there and say, oh, man, that's a really cool track. What, what, where'd that come from? Music matters, but production values don't. Fancy graphics, fancy, fancy things don't matter. What matters is the immediacy intense intensity of the moment and the energy and the authenticity of what's being presented. They are not looking for high production values. It's almost a detriment because it looks like they're being programmed to by a bunch of people who look like us. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost the inverse, right? It's almost a detriment. Yeah, if, if they think I'm producing the content, they are going to turn off right away. So that, that, that is the truth. If they think there's some guy doing this, and so the, again, this is similar to your team, there are a bunch of young people who know what they're really talking about who should be up here as opposed to me who would tell you really what's what. And the fact is, is though, that's why it's really important that you don't focus on production values. What you focus on is really what works on the platform and being as true to the platform as possible. Yep. <laughs> that's great that. I mean, production values. I mean, have, have you done, you guys have done some really high quality stuff though. Yeah, we've done, uh, I think it, if we're trying to sort of do something that's more like a, um, I guess got the potential to go viral, if you like, yeah. and uh, is a bit more stunt-like. We've done some really high production value pieces that do that job. But I think, I mean, your point about having a detrimental effect, if you make it look like TV, it's just an immediate turn-off sometimes for, for viewers who want YouTube authentic and YouTube-specific content. We, we, do a, we do a program for EA Sports on the Premier League uh, channel, and it's like, it, and the programs, we're working with players on this, and we're working with the players. And it's getting the balance right because the brand and, and the Premier League has to represent a certain quality. And yet we need to have an authenticity to the platform. And getting that balance right of not being overproduced but yet produced to a quality where 
the company's comfortable with it is really the balance that organizations like ours, ours have to deal with and you have to think about as well. You don't want your brand to be piled in with all, a bunch of other stuff, but at the same time, in order to work on the platform, it has to be. So that's the challenge. Well, we are out of time. The clock's literally Sorry, gone I, off. Sorry, you can't uh, shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fantastic. Um, could you all give uh, Jeff and Robbie a round of applause, please? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadcast Sport Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave us a rating on your podcast app and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next time.